Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would so work through your word and by the power of your spirit now that we would behold Christ and be compelled to worship him. And Father, we pray that you would also cause the hope of the resurrection to become a fixed point in our thinking. Lord, we ask that you would cause our hope to be specific, and we pray that you would enable us to lay hold of the truth that you will raise the dead and cling to it. And Father, we pray that you would make us those who know that you have established the, right, the standard of righteousness and that you are the just judge. And so, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to fear you. And finally, Lord, we ask that you would make the word precious to us, that you would cause us to hear what you have revealed by the power of the Spirit, by inspiring your servant John, by sending the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to hear the word and recognize it as beyond all worth, as sweeter than honey. Cause your word, Lord, to be more precious to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces. We ask that you do these things and more in Christ's name and by the Spirit. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to the Gospel of John, and we'll be looking at John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. And as you turn there, uh, I just want to uh, say a word about the passage that Gabe read, which really sets the scene for this uh, block of teaching that the Lord Jesus delivers here in these verses that we're looking at together this morning, John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. So what Jesus has done is he has walked into Jerusalem on a Sabbath day, and he's found this lame man, and he spoke the words to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And when Jesus said those words, it was like him saying the words, Lazarus, come forth. And it happened. The weakness is banished. The inability is gone. And in the same way that the dead man came out of the tomb, the lame man got up, picked up his, man, his, his mat, and began to walk. And this took place on a Sabbath. And what John is doing is he is juxtaposing the healing of this lame man on the Sabbath with the things that Jesus is saying here in John 5, 19 through 30, to bring out the meaning of the Sabbath day and the import of the healing. And also, and this is part of the reason that we're here on Christmas Day, and also what John brings out is the way that Jesus and the Father work together. They always operate out of the same will, 
out of the same understanding of what is right, out of the same knowledge of everything that is, and out of the same absolute crystal clear understanding of what what is good. And so there is one will, one shared will between God the Father and God the Son, even as they are distinct persons. And we're going to see the Lord Jesus act out of that one will. Uh, Before we dip into John 5, let me just draw your attention to what I think is, is in some ways the central statement of 5, 1 through 18, and that is that statement in the middle of verse 9 where the ESV starts a new paragraph and it says, now that day was a Sabbath. And in the drama of the passage, it's almost as though you've had this this lame man experience the fulfillment of of that passage that was read earlier in the the service from Isaiah 35. The, The blind will see, the lame will walk, and here it is, this lame man is walking and, and there's this exultant joy. And then it's as though John says, now that day was a Sabbath. And there's this foreboding and this ominous understanding that the Jews are not going to like this. And, and what John is bringing out is the way that the Jews have totally failed to understand what the Sabbath is about. They think the Sabbath is about not doing anything. That's not what the Sabbath is about. The Sabbath is about celebrating God's presence. The Sabbath is about enjoying the goodness of God in creation. And so God creates this very good good world across those six days. He completes the project, and then it's as though he relishes the glory of it on the seventh day and thereby consecrates it and makes it holy. And this is what he wanted done on the Sabbath, Sabbath day. He wanted his people to worship him. And so what Jesus has done, really, is he has fulfilled the Sabbath because it is only those who are whole, those who are unblemished, those who are restored, who will be able to enter into the presence of God in the new heavens and new earth. So the Sabbath day is like a remembrance of what we lost when we were driven out of the Garden of Eden because of sin. And it's like an anticipation of what will be restored when we're raised from the dead and made fit to enter into God's presence. That's what the Sabbath day is about. And what Jesus has done is like an anticipation of the resurrection by restoring health to this man's marred body. So Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath and they think he has violated it. They have totally misunderstood it. And, and so they're unhappy about this. And you can see there in verse 16, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And as so often in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to be aware that he has offended somebody, and he's just going to exacerbate it. He's just going to make it worse. He's not going to do anything to try to soften the, the, their offense at what he's done. Look at what he says there in verse 17. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And when you, when you sort of think your way through the implications of what he's saying, he, here's the kind of thing he's getting at. It's as though he's saying, do you think the father stops all his work every seventh day? Do you realize what would happen if God did that? If God just took his hands off the controls on the seventh day? 
Do you see what would happen? The universe would disintegrate. It's like Jesus is saying the words of Hebrews 1.3. He is upholding all things by the word of his power, even unto now. And by the way, I'm involved in the project. Which, you can hear what he's saying. It's as though he's telling these guys, look, you're all worked up about the Sabbath. You know what? God violates the Sabbath every seventh day. Do you realize that? And I'm right there in on it with him. That's what Jesus is saying. And then verse 18 is natural. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And John, it's, it's, John is, is such an artist because we can read right past these things and if we don't slow down and think about them, we miss their import. What he's depicting is Jesus bringing about fullness of life. He has restored this man's life. He has anticipated the resurrection of the dead. And he's done it on the Sabbath day, which is a day that is about life. It's about worship. That's what worship is about. It's about the enjoyment of life as God intended it. And they want to kill him. There he stands before them, the healer of the sick. In a few chapters, in fact, I think there's a literary relationship between John 5 and 11. In this chapter, Jesus is going to say, a time is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And then in John 11, he says those words that I alluded to earlier, Lazarus, come forth. So he's a healer of the sick. In chapter 6, he's going to feed the hungry. In chapter 7, he's going to essentially say, I'm the source of living water. Come to me and drink. And then in chapter 8, he'll say, I'm the light of the world. Chapter 9, he's going to heal the man born blind. Chapter 10, he's going to present himself as the good shepherd. This is who he is. And their response is, we want you dead. They're saying, if we had the chance, we would kill God. That's what they're saying. Because this is who Jesus is. I wonder if you identify with the Jewish opponents of Jesus. Honestly, is your heart such that if he did something that surprised you, that took you off guard, that went against your sensibilities, would your response to him be, well, whatever he wants to do, he has the authority to do it. It's his prerogative. He can do as he pleases. Or is your response to him, if I could kill you, I would. John 5, 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to them, but he's not breaking the Sabbath at all. He's fulfilling the Sabbath. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What John is doing is expositing for us Jesus' statement, my father is working until now. And I also am working. John is telling us this is what that means. Jesus is saying, I'm equal with God. He's my own father. John is telling us for Jesus to do what God does requires Jesus being what God is. And so it's, it's like John doesn't want you to miss the import of Jesus saying, my father is working until now and I also am working. John brings out that the only way that Jesus can get away with violating the Sabbath every Lord's, not Lord's Day, 
every seventh day, that's what I meant to say, violating it by, as Hebrews 1.3 says, upholding all things by the word of his power. The only way that Jesus can do this is if he is, as Hebrews 1.3 says, the exact imprint of his nature and the radiance of his glory. So John says, this is what Jesus was doing. He was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that brings us to this extraordinary passage in John 5, 19 through 30, where it's as though the Lord Jesus says to these Jewish opponents, let me explain to you why you shouldn't want to kill me in response to what I've just done. And so he starts and ends in the same place. He starts and ends by saying something that I'm going to paraphrase like this. I haven't just done something impulsive. I haven't just done something willy-nilly out of my own creativity or out of my own ingenuity. I didn't just make this up as I was going along. This didn't just come from me. This came from my agreement with the Father. Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them. So he's speaking here to his opponents, which just as sort of an aside... Here in John 5 through 11, you're going to have this, this block of text that I think stands across from John 12 through 17. And in John 12 through 17, Jesus is in private with his disciples, and he's at this one Passover feast with them, the night, the night on which he is betrayed, essentially. In this block of text, John 5 through 11, he's in public with the crowds, and he's at a series of feasts. So 5-1, you know, there was a feast of the Jews. John doesn't tell us which one. It's just some feast or other. And then John 7, he's at Passover. I'm sorry, John 6, he's at Passover. John 7, he's at Tabernacles. Uh, John 8, he seems to be at that same Tabernacles. And then John 10, he's at the Feast of Dedication. So there's a series of feasts in 5 through 11. He's in public with the crowds. And then 12 through 17, he's in private with his disciples. And he's at that one Passover. John 5:19. Jesus said to them, to his opponents, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now drop down and look at verse 30. In verse 30, the ESV has this in a new section. There, in my opinion, you know, that, that little subtitle that says witnesses to Jesus, that's added by the publisher. That's not put there by the, the author of John, the, by the author of the gospel. So I would invite you to just ignore it and group verse 30 with what goes before. Look at how similar verse 30 is to verse 19. I can do nothing on my own. Uh, if, if we were reading this in the original, we would see that the phrasing is almost exactly the same. I, I, he, he says, uh, the son can do nothing from himself. And then he says, I can do nothing from myself. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he's saying, I don't do anything out of my own self. He's saying, in verse 19, he says, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. In verse 30, as I hear... I judge. So it's like Jesus is saying, I am an eyewitness, and if we, if we could put it this way, I don't know, first-hand hearer of the Father's will. So Jesus is claiming to know exactly what the Father wants him to do because he, of what he has seen and what he's heard 
And this is the way he's talked already in the Gospel of John. You remember what he said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, Jesus kind of gets finished with his first part talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus says, we testify of what we have seen. And, and I speak of what I know, and you don't receive my testimony. So Jesus is claiming to be a first-hand witness to the Father. And because of this, he claims to know the will of the Father. So don't miss the logical connection here. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not just doing something willy-nilly out of myself. This is what the Father wants. I mean, it's almost like John 4 Uh, These are the kinds of people that the Father seeks to worship Him. Those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. What the Father wants is restoration of life, health. What the Father wants is for the Sabbath to be a day of worship, not an onerous day of obligations that you not do anything. That's not the point. So he starts and ends essentially saying, you're trying to kill me, Because you think that's what carrying out the will of the Father entails. Actually, I'm the one who's done the will of the Father in this scenario. And then, after starting and ending this way, there's a second section that's going to correspond to the second to last section. And the first one is in verses 20 through 23. And the second one is in verses 25 through 28. And I just want to point out some of the similarities between these. Um, so that you can, you can take my word for it, and then we walk through them together. Look at, look at verse 21. He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And then look down at verse um, 28. An hour is coming when all who are in the ter- tombs will hear his voice and come out. So he's talking about resurrection in both sections. And then where we saw that, as the Father, so the Son language in verse 21, you see that same thing in verse 26. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So in these two sections, Jesus is going to talk about resurrection. He's also going to talk about judgment in both of these. And and he's going to speak of how, just as the Father does something, the Son also does it. So these two sections are corresponding to one another, mutually interpreting one another. And so we're going to read them together. Verse 20. The Father loves the Son. And, and, and that's an astonishing claim to make in the face of people who are thinking that they're going to execute you for blasphemy and violation of the Sabbath and, and the claim that you're equal with God. He's, he's saying to them, you think you're going to execute God's just displeasure on me by putting me to death. Actually, the reality is the Father loves the Son. And shows him all that he himself is doing. So again, Jesus is saying, look, I'm the one doing the will of the Father. And and the Father is working until now. And I know, I see what the Father does because the Father shows me what he does. And and this this is unparalleled in the world's literature. Because nowhere else in the world's literature... Do you have the second person of the Godhead telling you how he knows what the first person of the Godhead does? There is nothing like this anywhere else, even in the Bible. This is so unique. The Son is saying, 
the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And so we can just sort of step back and reflect, what kind of things does the Father do? Well, he restores life. He seeks worship. He he creates a fabulous world. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And the Son is in all on all this. My Father is working until now, and I also am working. The Son is in all on all this because the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And then he goes on there in verse 20, and greater works than these he will, will he show him so that you may marvel. I think what Jesus is doing is anticipating what, what he's about to talk about, which is resurrection in verse 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And, and so the greater works that Jesus is talking about, I think, are things like the raising of Lazarus. So Jesus is anticipating what he's going to do. And then, you know, the, the Gospel of John is so interesting. Because even the raising of Lazarus is not the ultimate resurrection, is it? Is it? The raising of Lazarus is just an anticipation of what's going to happen when Jesus returns. And we could say the same thing about the healing of this man. The healing of this man is just an anticipation of the restoration of the body when Christ returns and raises the dead. You can say this about so many things that Jesus does in John. John 2, he goes to this wedding and he fills up these water jars and they draw the best wine out. And it's a symbol. These water jars are used for old covenant rites. It symbolizes the way that the old covenant has come to an end. It's run out and it's been filled up. And now Jesus is drawing this new covenant out of it. it happens on the third day at a wedding. But it's not the making of the new covenant, is it? That awaits the actual crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus the new covenant being made. So there's so much, we could say the same thing about the, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. And, and, and again, you know, what he provides to that 5,000 is not the ultimate satisfaction that they need, but it points to it. So also this healing. Jesus is saying, greater works are coming. Greater works are coming. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Here, I think he's, he's telling his opponents, it's like he's saying, look, guys, you think I've violated the Sabbath. I haven't violated the Sabbath. You think all I've done is healed this man. I've done so much more than just healing this man. This is a pointer to what the Sabbath is about. This is a pointer beyond itself to the resurrection of the dead. That's what this is about. And as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So the Son is asserting his unique divine prerogative. He has the authority, the will, to say to something that is dead, live, and it happens. Why? Well, verse 22 The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He has this authority because the Father has given him this authority. And here again, this is remarkable insight, unparalleled insight into the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father judges no one. This also speaks to these people who have rendered a judgment. Their judgment is worthy of execution, and they point at Jesus. And he says, 
Actually, I'm your judge. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, you people who are trying to kill me, does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, before we look at verses 25 through 28, where many of these same themes are going to be restated, as the Father, so the Son, resurrection, judgment, let me point out that there, there's also going to be some new information given in verses 25 through 28. Look, for instance, at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Let's start with this hour is coming and now here, now, and is now here business. I think what he means is, what I've just done by saying to this man, get up, take up your bed and walk, the hour is here. That's just like, Lazarus, come forth. And yet, a time is coming when the heavens are going to open and he's going to come, just as they saw him go. And the dead in Christ will rise first. The people of Jesus are going to hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live, which I think means he is going to summon them forth. Jesus is going to give the call, and his sheep are going to hear his voice, and though their bodies are dead in the grave, they are going to respond to his life-giving word. So, new information, part one the dead are going to be raised at the call of, of the Lord Jesus. New information, part two, that hour is coming and is now here as Christ speaks healing to this man and life to Lazarus. And then verse 26 takes us, verse, coming up to John 5, 26 reminds me of what I felt when I, when I, when I had the opportunity several years ago to go to the Grand Canyon and they, they took us down through the river, and then they, they, they had us walk up uh, this trail, and then they brought us around, and, and, and we came over this precipice, and we're looking down into the Colorado River, and it is a sheer drop. And if you know me, you know that I hate all such situations. I, I start feeling dizzy. I start feeling like I'm going to fall over, and I start getting as far away from the ledge as possible and like hugging the wall of rock behind me. I hate that, but that's what this is like. It's, it's this dizzying height that, that it almost feels like there is no bottom, and, and in reality, there is no bottom to what we're about to read here in verse 26. Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself... And I think what he means is something like, there is nothing that gives the Father life. There is nothing that the Father needs to sustain his life. It's, it's almost as though Jesus is drawing out the meaning of Moses saying, what is his name? And him responding, I am who I am. He has life in himself. He is being unconstrained, unsupported, unhelped in any way, 
as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Which I think means that everything that the Father is as a self-sustaining God who is absolute being, the Son is as a self-sustaining God who is absolute being. Theologians sometimes refer to God as pure act. There is nothing not doing in him. He is pu- he's, he's being itself. And the Son has this from the Father. Because as we confess in our creed, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The, the Son derives his existence from the Father always and ever generating him. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Note again the similarity between verse 26 and verse 21. Verse 21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. I think this is on purpose. I think that that what John is is drawing out, and, and, and I think Jesus said this, And John faithfully recorded it and presented it so we would see it. What John is drawing out is the way that it is the fact that God has life in himself that he's able to give life to others or to speak life to the dead. And Jesus has the same power. And then in the same way that that statement about the life-giving power of God in verse 21 is followed by a statement about judgment in verse 22... So also God's life in himself in verse 26 is followed by judgment in verse 27. Verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And here I think Jesus is essentially saying something like, you remember that vision in Daniel 7 where the one like the son of man is presented before the ancient of days and he receives a kingdom and that kingdom is never going to come to an end? That's who I am. And the Father has given him the throne, and the throne is about judgment, and the Son will execute judgment. So if you're here this morning, and you're tempted to think, yeah, if I had the chance, I'd kill him. If there's any part of you that feels that way, you need to recognize you're trying to murder your judge, and you will never succeed. And you need to respond by being terrified because he knows. He knows. But the good news is he's merciful. He's forgiving. And to those who recognize, I would have killed you had I been given the chance. But I repent of that. And, and I'm, there's no way I could achieve that. So I'm going to stop trying and I'm going to bring myself into submission to you. He extends forgiveness, pardon. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. All the dead are going to hear his voice and come out. He's going to summon them from the graves. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And apart from his grace and mercy, nobody meets that requirement. And then he continues, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I was 
encouraged as we were reading this together as a family this week. And one of my children said, that sounds like the Athanasian Creed. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And it does sound like the creed that we will recite later in the service. But it's not teaching works-based salvation because what it's doing is pointing back to the central section of this whole passage, which is in verse 24. So the doing of good is defined by what Jesus states in verse 24, which we passed over. And, and the way that this passage is structured, it's as though maybe you can envision a series of spotlights. And all the spotlights are pointed at the center of the stage because what the stage manager wants you to see is what's on the center of the stage. Well, that's how verses 19 and 30 and then verses 20 through 23 and 25 through 28 are functioning. They're spotlighting verse 24. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. So verse 29, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, doing good in verse 29 means, verse 24, hearing his word and believing him who sent him. <clears throat> That's what it means to do good. That's the only way anybody is reckoned good. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. So this entails... If, you, if you're somebody and you think that your standard of righteousness is superior to the standard of righteousness that Jesus delivers, the standard of righteousness that prompts him to do things like heal people on the Sabbath, the standard of righteousness that prompts him to do things like say, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. And you think, oh, I know better than that. Or he says, you know, he who made them male and female said, the two shall become one flesh. And you think, oh, I know better than that. I know a better standard of righteousness than that. <clears throat> you hear his word and you believe him who sent him. You believe, okay, I used to think I knew better than him. Now I understand he is God in the flesh. Everything the father is, he is. And I repent. I turn away from my tendency to think I know better than the Lord Jesus, to think I know better than the Bible. And I now bring myself into submission to him, and whatever he says, I'm going to regard as true. If that happens for you, all that stuff about you wanting to kill him, all that stuff about you sitting in judgment on him, all of that stuff is separated from you as far as the east is from the west. And you pass from death to life, and you will not come into judgment. That's what it says. Look right there in verse 24. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is a, a stunning and remarkable passage. It's an opportunity for us to reflect 
on who Christ is, who the man Christ is. As I was thinking about, about this being Christmas Day, I felt like we ought to say something like we do on Easter Sunday, you know, he is risen, he is risen indeed. He is human, he is human indeed. He really has come in the flesh. God really did come among us. And he didn't leave off being what he was when he became flesh. So let me give you four points of application, uh, ways to respond, ways I'm commending to you to respond to John chapter 5, verses 19 through 30. Number one, behold the incarnate God, fully man, fully God, a distinct person from the Father sharing one divine nature. And as we think about him, as we say in our confession, we neither confound the persons, we don't mix up the Father with the Son, nor do we divide the substance. We don't say the Son is something different from God the Father in what he is as God. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. One God, three persons. And, and let me just urge you to worship Jesus. Take some time. This, nobody's, I mean, this is Christmas holiday. Most people have a little bit extra time on their hands. Let me urge you to take some time in the coming days to reflect on the Lord Jesus, to, to sit with John 5, 26, and just meditate on those words. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And let those words roll around in your brain and let their implications begin to stew like, like tea leaves. Let them... Let them steep in the hot water of your thinking. Meditate on who Christ is and worship him. Second, hope in the life-giving power of the word of God. Make, let, me, let me encourage you to put some fixed points in your hopes. Take the hope of the resurrection and place it like a nail and drive it into what you believe. And let it affect what happens in your life as you age. And, and don't believe the lies in our culture that life is always better and only better when you're young. And don't believe the lies in our culture that there is no hope that goes beyond the grave. Oppose these wrong ideas in our culture with the truth of the resurrection and hope in it. Make it a fixed point. Hang your life on it. God's word will restore, resurrect, fulfill, and satisfy. Number three, fear the judgment. God is the righteous standard. And, and you, can, you can work this through in your meditations as well. If there is no grounding reality to the standard of righteousness. Well, people just do with the standard of righteousness what our culture is doing with it. And that's they just bend it to whatever the new fad is, whatever they want it to be, and it just keeps changing. But it, it ultimately doesn't change because it's grounded in the character of God, and that should terrify every one of us. We should fear God. We should fear God because he's holy. Number four, you know, it, it's the time, it's the, the end of one year and the beginning of another. And it's a time for all of us to reflect, what kind of person am I going to be? 
What kind of person am I going to be on January 1, 2023? And then the choices that you make between now and January 1, 2023 determine what kind of person you're going to be on January 1, 2024. And the hope of the resurrection and the power of the word of Christ and the glory of Christ mean that you can change. And the path to change is the path of abiding in Christ as you meditate on Scripture. So the fourth point of application that I have for you is hear the word of Christ. Hear the Bible and believe it. It's just John 5, 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. So I just want to take this opportunity again to urge you to memorize and meditate and study the word. Give yourself to it. Worship Christ, hope in the resurrection, fear God, and give yourself to the scriptures. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that the one whose praise we sing, the one who has summoned us out of our spiritual death, is altogether worthy. We praise you that there is no lack in him, that there is nothing inappropriate or unseemly, nothing to make us ashamed. Lord, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is worthy of our worship. And we pray that you would make us people who know you, people who have, people who have contemplated the mysteries, meditated upon the glories and responded as we should with hearts that love you, trust you, and rejoice in you, whatever the next year brings. We ask it in Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.